Section 20 of Lucretia Borgia by Ferdinand Gregorovius. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Maynard. Book 1, Chapter 20, Negotiations with the House of Este. The hereditary prince of Ferrara made a determined resistance before yielding to his father's pressure. But the latter was now so anxious for the marriage to take place that he told his son that, if he persisted in his refusal, he would be compelled to marry Lucretia himself. After the duke had overcome his son's pride and secured his consent, he regarded the marriage merely as an advantageous piece of statecraft. He sold the honor of his house at the highest price obtainable. The pope's agents in Ferrara, frightened by Ercole's demands, sent Raimondo Remolini to Rome to submit them to Alexander, who sought the intervention of the king of France to secure more favorable terms from the duke. A letter from the Ferrarese ambassador to France to his master throws a bright light on this transaction. My illustrious master, yesterday the Pope's envoy told me that His Holiness had written him about the messenger Your Excellency had sent him, demanding two hundred thousand ducats, the remission of the annual tribute, the granting of the Jus Patronitus for the Bishopric of Ferrara, by decree of the Consistory, and certain other concessions. He told me that the Pope had offered a hundred thousand, and as to the rest, Your Excellency should trust to him, for he would grant them in time, and would advance the interests of the House of Este, so that everyone would see how high in his favor it stood. In addition, he told me that he was instructed to ask His Most Christian Majesty to write to the illustrious Cardinal to advise Your Excellency to agree. As Your Excellency's devoted servant, I mention this, although it is superfluous, for if this marriage is to take place, you will arrange it in such a way that, quote, much promising and little fulfillment will not cause you to regret it. I informed Your Excellency in an earlier letter how His Most Christian Majesty had told me that his wishes in this affair were the same as your own, and that if the marriage was to be brought about, you might derive as much profit from it as possible, and if it was not to take place, His Majesty stood ready to give Don Alfonso, the lady whom Your Excellency might select for him, in France. Your Ducal Excellency's Servant, Bartolomeo Cavalieri. Lyon, August seventh, 1501. Alexander did not wish to send his daughter to Ferrara with empty hands, but the portion which Ercole demanded was not a modest one. It was larger than Bianca Sforza had brought the Emperor Maximilian. Moreover, one of the Duke's demands involved an infraction of the canon law, for in addition to the large sum of money, he insisted upon the remission of the yearly tribute paid the Church by the fief of Ferrara, the cession of Cento e Pieve, cities which belonged to the Archbishopric of Bologna, and even on the relinquishment of Porto Cesenatico, and a large number of benefices in favor of the House of Este. They wrangled violently, but so great was the Pope's desire to secure the ducal throne of Ferrara for his daughter, that he soon announced that he would practically agree to Ercole's demands, which Caesar urged him to do. Nor was Lucretia herself less urgent in begging her father to consent. She was the Duke's most able advocate in Rome, and Ercole knew that it was due largely to her skilful pleading that he succeeded in carrying his point. 
the negotiations took this favourable turn about the end of july or the beginning of august and the earliest of the duke's letter to lucretia and the pope among those preserved in the archives of the house of este belonged to this period august sixth ercole wrote his future daughter-in-law recommending to her for her agent one agostino huet a secretary of caesar's who had shown the greatest interest in conducting the negotiations august tenth he reported to the pope the result of the conferences which had taken place and urged him not to look on his demands as unreasonable this he repeated in a letter dated august twenty first in which he stated in plain commercial terms that the price was low enough in fact that it was merely nominal in the meantime the projected marriage had become known to the world and was the subject of diplomatic consideration for the strengthening of the papacy was agreeable to neither the powers of italy nor those beyond the peninsula florence and bologna which caesar coveted were frightened the republic of venice which was in constant friction with ferrara and which had designs upon the coast of romagna did not conceal her annoyance and she ascribed the whole thing to caesar's ambition the king of france put a good face upon the matter as did also the king of spain but maximilian was so opposed to the marriage that he endeavoured to prevent it ferrara was just beginning to acquire the political importance which florence had possessed in the time of lorenzo de medici consequently its influence was such that the german emperor could not be indifferent to an alliance between it and the papacy in france moreover bianca sforza was maximilian's wife and at the german court there were other members and retainers of the overthrown house all bitter enemies of the borgias in august the emperor despatched letters to ferrara in which he warned ercole against any marital alliance between his house and that of alexander this warning of maximilian's must have been highly acceptable to the duke as he could use it to force the pope to accede to his demands he mentioned the letter to his holiness but assured him that his determination would remain unshaken then he instructed his counsellor gianluca pozzi to answer the emperor's letter ercole's letter to his chancellor is dated august twenty fifth but before its contents became known in rome the pope hastened to agree to the duke's conditions and to have the marriage contract executed this was done in the vatican august twenty sixth fifteen o one he immediately despatched cardinal ferrari to ercole with a contract whereupon don ramiro remolini and other proxies hastened to ferrara where in the castle of belfiore the nuptial contract was concluded ad verba september first fifteen o one on the same day the duke wrote lucretia saying that while he hitherto had loved her on account of her virtues and on account of the pope and her brother caesar he now loved her more as a daughter in the same tone he wrote alexander himself informing him that the betrothal had taken place and thanking him for bestowing the dignity of the archpriest of st peter's on his son cardinal ippolito less diplomatic was ercole's letter to marchese gonzaga informing him of the event it clearly shows what was his real opinion and he tries to excuse himself for consenting by saying he was forced to take the step illustrious sir and dearest brother we have informed your majesty that we have recently decided owing to practical considerations to consent to an alliance between our house and that of his holiness the marriage of our eldest son alfonso and the illustrious lady lucretia borgia 
sister of the illustrious Duke of Romagna and Valentinois, chiefly because we were urged to consent by His Most Christian Majesty, and on condition that His Holiness would agree to everything stipulated in the marriage contract. Subsequently, His Holiness and ourselves came to an agreement, and the Most Christian King persistently urged us to execute the contract. This was done today in God's name, and with the assistance of the French ambassador and the proxies of His Holiness, who were present, and it was also published this morning. I hasten to inform Your Majesty of the event, because our mutual relations and love require that you should be made acquainted with everything which concerns us, and so we offer ourselves to do your pleasure. Ferrara, September 2nd, 1501. September 4th, a courier brought the news that the nuptial contract had been signed in Ferrara. Alexander immediately had the Vatican illuminated, and the canon of Castle Sant'Angelo announced the glad tidings. All Rome resounded with the jubilations of the retainers of the House of Borgia. This moment was the turning point in Lucretia's life. If her soul harbored any ambition and yearning for worldly greatness, what must she now have felt when the opportunity to ascend the princely throne of one of Italy's oldest houses was offered her? If she had any regret and loathing for what had surrounded her in Rome, and if longings for a better life were stronger in her than were these the vain desires, there was now held out to her the promise of a haven of rest. She was to become the wife of a prince famous, not for grace and culture, but for his good sense and earnestness. She had seen him once in Rome, in her early youth, when she was Forza's betrothed. No sacrifice would be too great for her if it would wipe out the remembrance of the nine years which had followed that day. The victory she had now won by shameful complaisance of the house of Este was associated with deep humiliation, for she knew that Alfonso had condescended to accept her hand only after long urging and under threats. A bold, intriguing woman might overcome this feeling of humiliation by summoning up the consciousness of her genius and her charm, while one less strong but endowed with beauty and sweetness might be fascinated by the idea of disarming a hostile husband with the magic of her personality. The question, however, whether any honor accrued to her by marrying a man against his will, or whether under such circumstances a high-minded woman would not have scornfully refused, would probably never arise in the mind of such a light-headed woman as Lucretia certainly was, and if it did in her case, Caesar and her father would never have allowed her to give voice to any such undiplomatic scruples. We can discover no trace of moral pride in her. All we discern is a childishly naive joy at her prospective happiness. The Roman populace saw her, accompanied by three hundred knights and four bishops, pass along the city streets, September 5th, on her way to Santa Maria del Popolo, to offer prayers of thanksgiving. Following a curious custom of the day, which shows folly and wisdom side by side, just as we find them in Calderon's and Shakespeare's dramas, Lucretia presented the costly robe which she wore when she offered up her prayer to one of her court fools, and the clown ran merrily through the streets of Rhone, bawling out, Long live the illustrious Duchess of Ferrara! Long live Pope Alexander! With noisy demonstrations, the Borgias and their retainers celebrated the great event. Alexander summoned a consistory, 
as though this family affair were an important church matter. With childish loquacity, he extolled Duke Ercole, pronouncing him the greatest and wisest of the princes of Italy. He described Don Alfonso as a handsomer and greater man than his son Caesar, adding that his former wife was a sister-in-law of the emperor. Ferrara was a fortunate state, and the house of Este an ancient one. A marriage train of great princes was shortly to come to Rome to take the bride away, and the Duchess of Urbino was to accompany it. September 14th, Caesar Borgia returned from Naples, where Federico, the last Aragonese king of that country, had been forced to yield to France. To his great satisfaction, he found Lucretia prospective Duchess of Ferrara. On the 15th, Ercole's envoys, Saraceni e Bellingeri, appeared. Their object was to see that the Pope fulfilled his obligations promptly. The Duke was a practical man. He did not trust him. He was unwilling to send the bridal escort until he had the papal bull in his own hands. Lucretia supported the ambassador so zealously that Saraceni wrote his master that she already appeared to him to be a good Ferrarese. She was present in the Vatican while Alexander carried on the negotiations. He sometimes used Latin for the purpose of displaying his linguistic attainments, but on one occasion, out of regard for Lucretia, he ordered that Italian be used, which proves that his daughter was not a perfect mistress of the classic tongue. From this ambassador's despatches, it appears that life in the Vatican was extremely agreeable. They sang, played, and danced every evening. One of Alexander's greatest delights was to watch beautiful women dancing, and when Lucretia and the ladies of her court were so engaged, he was careful to summon the Ferrarese ambassadors so that they might note his daughter's grace. One evening he remarked laughingly that, quote, they might see that the Duchess was not lame. The Pope never tired of passing the nights in this way, although Caesar, a strong man, was worn out by the ceaseless round of pleasure. When the latter consented to grant the ambassadors an audience, a favor which was not often bestowed even on cardinals, he received them dressed but lying in bed, which caused Saraceni to remark in his despatch, quote, I feared that he was sick, for last evening he danced without intermission, which he will do again tonight at the Pope's palace, where the illustrious Duchess is going to sup. Lucretia regarded it as a relief when a few days later the Pope went to Civita Castellana and Nepi. September 25th, the ambassadors wrote to Ferrara, quote, The illustrious lady continues somewhat ailing and is greatly fatigued. She is not, however, under the care of any physician, nor does she neglect her affairs, but grants audiences as usual. We think that this indisposition merely indicates that Her Majesty should take better care of herself. The rest which she will have while His Holiness is away will do her good for whenever she is at the Pope's palace, the entire night until two or three o'clock is spent in dancing and at play, which fatigues her greatly. About this time occurred a disagreeable episode in connection with Giovanni Sforza, Lucretia's divorced husband, which the Pope discussed with the Ferrarese ambassadors. What they feared from him is revealed by the following despatch. Illustrious Prince and Master as His Holiness the Pope desires to take all proper precautions to prevent the occurrence of anything that might be unpleasant to Your Excellency, to Don Alfonso, and especially to the Duchess, and also to himself, 
he has asked us to write your excellency and request that you see to it that lord giovanni of pesaro who his holiness has been informed is in mantua shall not be in ferrara at the time of the marriage festivities for although his divorce from the above-named illustrious lady was absolutely legal and according to prescribed form as the records of the proceedings clearly show he himself fully consenting to it he may nevertheless still harbour some resentment if he should be in ferrara there would be a possibility of his seeing the lady and her excellency would therefore be compelled to remain in concealment to escape disagreeable memories he therefore requests your excellency to prevent this possibility with your usual foresight thereupon his holiness freely expressed his opinion of the marchese of mantua and censured him severely because he of all the italian princes was the only one who offered an asylum to outcasts and especially to those who were under not only his own ban but under that of his most christian majesty we endeavoured however to excuse the marchese by saying that he a high-minded man could not close his domain to such as wished to come to him especially when they were people of importance and we used every argument to defend him his holiness however seemed displeased by our defence of the marchese your excellency may therefore make such arrangements as in your wisdom seem proper and so we in all humility commend ourselves to your mercy rome september twenty third fifteen o one as a result of ercole's insistence the question of the reduction of ferrara's yearly tribute as a fief of the holy see from four hundred ducats to one hundred florins was brought to a vote in the consistory september seventeenth it was expected that there would be violent opposition alexander explained what ercole had done for ferrara his founding convents and churches and his strengthening the city thus making it a bulwark for the states of the church the cardinals were induced to favour the reduction by the intervention of the cardinal of cosenza one of lucretia's creatures and of messer trush caesar's confidant they authorised the reduction and the pope thanked them especially praising the older cardinals the younger those of his own creation having been more obstinate the same day he secured possession of the property he had wrested from the barons who had been placed under his ban august twentieth these domains which embraced a large part of the roman campagna were divided into two districts the centre of one was nepi that of the other sermoneta two cities which lucretia their former mistress immediately renounced alexander made these duchies over to two children giovanni borgia and rodrigo at first the pope ascribed the paternity of the former child to his own caesar but subsequently he publicly announced that he himself was its father it is difficult to believe in such unexampled shamelessness but the legal documents to prove it are in existence both bulls are dated september first fifteen o one and are addressed to my beloved son quote, the noble giovanni de borgia and infante of rome in the former alexander states that giovanni a child of three years was the natural son of caesar borgia unmarried which he was at the time of its birth by a single woman by apostolic authority he legitimated the child and bestowed upon it all the rights of a member of his family 
In the second brief, he refers to the proceedings in which the child had been declared to be Caesar's son, and says verbatim, Since it is owing, not to the duke named Caesar, but to us and to the unmarried woman mentioned, that you bear this stain of illegitimate birth, which for good reasons we did not wish to state in the preceding instrument, and in order that there may be no chance of your being caused annoyance in the future, we will see to it that the document shall never be declared null, and of our own free will, and by virtue of our authority, we confirm you, by these presents, in the full enjoyment of everything as provided in that instrument. Thereupon he renews the legitimation, and announces that, even if this is his child, which had hitherto been declared to be Caesar's, shall in future, and in any document or act, be named and described as his, Caesar's. And even if he uses Caesar's arms, it shall in no way inure to the disadvantage of the child, and that all such acts shall have the same force which they would have if the boy had been described not as Caesar's, but as his own, in the documents referring to his legitimation. It is worthy of note that both these documents were executed on one and the same day, but this is explained by the fact that the canon law prevented the Pope from acknowledging his own son, Alexander, therefore extricated himself from the difficulty by telling a falsehood in the first bull. This lie made the legitimation of the child possible, and also conferred upon it the rights of the succession. And this having once been embodied in a legal document, the Pope could, without injury to the child, tell the truth. September 1st, 1501, Caesar was not in Rome. Even a man of his stamp may have blushed for his father when he thus made him the rival of this bastard for the possession of the property. Later, after Alexander's death, the little Giovanni Borgia passed for Caesar's son. He had, moreover, been described as such by the Pope in numerous briefs. It is not known who was the mother of this mysterious child. Burchard speaks of her merely as a, quote, certain Roman. If Alexander, who described her as a, quote, unmarried woman, told the truth, Julia Farnese could not have been its mother. It is possible, however, that the Pope's second statement likewise was untrue, and that the, quote, infante of Rome was not his son, but was a natural child of Lucretia. The reader will remember that in March 1498 the Ferrarese ambassador reported to Duke Ercole that it was rumored in Rome that the Pope's daughter had given birth to a child. This date agrees perfectly with the age of the Infante Giovanni in September 1501. Both documents regarding its legitimation, which are now preserved in the Este archives, were originally in Lucretius' chancellery. She may have taken them with her from Rome to Ferrara, or they may have been brought to her later. Eventually we shall find the Infante at her court in Ferrara, where he was spoken of as her, quote, brother. These facts suggest that the mysterious Giovanni Borgia was Lucretia's son. This, however, is only a hypothesis. The city of Nepi and thirty-six other estates were conferred upon the child as his dukedom. The second domain, including the Duchy of Sermoneta and twenty-eight castles, was given to little Rodrigo, Lucretia's only son by Alfonso of Aragon. Under Lucretia's changed conditions, this child was an embarrassment to her, for she either was not allowed or did not dare to bring a child by her former husband to Ferrara. 
For the sake of her character, let us assume that she was compelled to leave her child among strangers. The order to do so, however, does not appear to have emanated from Ferrara, for September 28th the ambassador Gerardi gave his master an account of a call which he made on Madonna Lucretia, in which he said, quote, As her son was present, I asked her, in such a way that she could not mistake my meaning, what was to be done with him, to which she replied, quote, He will remain in Rome, and will have an allowance of 15,000 ducats. The little Rodrigo was, in truth, provided for in a princely manner. He was placed under the guardianship of two cardinals, the Patriarch of Alexandria and Francesco Borgia, Archbishop of Cosenza. He received the revenues of Sermoneta, and he also owned Bizelli, his unfortunate father's inheritance. For Ferdinand and Isabella of Castile authorized their ambassador in Rome, Francesco de Roxas, January 7, 1502, to confirm Rodrigo in the possession of the Duchy of Bizelli and the city of Quadrata. According to this act, his title was Don Rodrigo Borgia of Aragon, Duke of Bizelli and Sermoneta, and Lord of Quadrata. End of chapter 20